Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Ozpiz Live from our Barangaroo studios. We've just gone up. Past midday Eastern Daylight Standard Time, that means you are tuning into the call. Uh, 10 stocks picked by you. I put them to our expert panel for their analysis. We do it all in one hour. It is Tuesday, the 7th of February. It's fast and furious. It's always informative on a day when markets are sort of a bit nervy about the Reserve Bank board meeting uh, uh, coming up in a couple of hours. Not that they're uh, is any doubt that there will be an interest rate increase, but uh, what the comments will be attaching to that result. Uh, the panel today, Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool. Scott, welcome. And Daniel Ortizzi from Lincoln Indicators for the first time making the calls panel. Daniel, welcome. Thanks, Scotty. Hopefully you can do the show justice and provide some uh, interesting well, comments today mate, for everyone. We put you up with... The lion of the call in terms of Scott Phillips from the Motley Fool. Uh, that'd be fair enough, Scott, don't you think? And I'm not sure. Lion, L-O-I-N, not L-Y-I-N-G, right? So we're clear. <laughs> exactly. Um, Scott, how are you feeling ahead of the uh, Reserve Bank decision? Will it have a bigger impact on markets, do you think? Or has it all been baked in? Man, as you say, I mean, you, you know as well as we do, the, the, the comments themselves you've already mentioned are going to be the big thing. Look, they could they could shock the market. You know, we think about the forecast for the rest of the year. Some people saying the ASX should, oh, sorry, the ASX, the RBA should sit pat, not do anything because inflation is already turning. Others are saying four or five rate rises this year. That that just tells you exactly how uncertain things are, mate. Yeah. The RBA doesn't know. Economists don't know. We don't know. So I'm not worried about today at all, frankly. I'm a little bit mindful of what we do moving forward when it comes to the next couple of months so yeah. the comments absolutely how close do they feel like they are to finished how much is still to go they're probably the big ones yeah daniel do you um are you you're approaching the the decision with you know i suppose the ripple effect of their comments on future rate rises on retail stocks um consumer spending has got to play into it does it yeah, of course, there'll be a lot of implications from today's meeting. But I think, you know, one thing we're forgetting about, we're talking about inflation becoming the dominant narrative. But how's the stress on the consumer and stress on the housing market going to play out, which I think will be the most interesting yeah. side of the comments, because from our channel checks and conversations with real estate agents and brokers, there are, is a lot of uh, financial hardships starting to come through. So we'll be really interested to see yeah. that side of the commentary. Yeah, it's an interesting market that listings have fallen off a cliff in terms of the property mm. sector at the moment. So you can't take auctions at face value. But I've got to say, I was sitting down with my 89-year-old mum on Sunday going through a term deposit and we were going through a statement and two years ago, she got $300 in interest and currently for this first six months she's up to 1700 bucks <laughs> so that's the other side of the coin is it uh so many particularly self-funded retirees 
who are, who are, are rejoicing, they're getting a, a decent return on their cash going forward. Uh, but the other thing is, I read a report yesterday saying half of Australians still have their savings in a transaction account, which is getting less than half a percent. So just got to check your accounts. Hey, let's take a look at the stocks that we're going to be covering this half hour. Bank of Queensland, ASX, uh, Sims, Telstra, TPG Telecom. Uh, so a bit of a financial, bit of a, uh, a telco feel for the first half hour. Um, I thought stock of the day though, uh, Macquarie Bank, um, uh, a favourite here of a lot of the panellists on the call, released its quarterly results, performance mixed across its businesses in the three months to the end of December. Asset management's third quarter net profit was substantially down on prior corresponding period. Meanwhile, the commodities and global markets business was up, that's what has been forecast for a while, uh, driven by rising gas and power prices. Look ahead, uh, the business expects Macquarie Asset Management net uh, other operating income to be significantly down due to uh, Macquarie infrastructure gains. Uh, up uh, 1.5% today. Scott, what did you think of the result from Macquarie? Uh, they, they are very good at giving market guidance, Koshi. I think that's yep. probably what well, my, fir my first thought was just, this is what they said would happen and this is what happened. And so there isn't much. And that's why the shares are up a little bit, which is nice if you're a Macquarie shareholder. I'm not, yep. unfortunately. Um, but look, very decent results given the guidance, given the circumstances they're operating in. Uh, no, nothing to scare the horses in either direction. As a long-term uh, bull on Macquarie, this is very much, it, it's a story of the people, right? This is a people business. They do a very, very good job of aligning the incentives of the team with the interests of shareholders. And as long as that remains the case, they don't take too much risk. You want to let this sort of story play out. It's been a remarkable long-term success story. Not much in the results themselves to tell us all that much in terms of the future. I'm a little bit surprised they didn't give us a little more clarity on that. Um, but maybe again, as we've just talked about with rates, nobody knows. And, yeah. and I will say, as much as I say, I'm surprised we didn't get more clarity. I'm also a big fan of management not saying anything if they don't know. Yeah. Pretending you know the answer just to calm markets is not very useful because it just means you're kicking the proverbial can down the road. Yeah, yeah. So hold it if you're in it. I reckon, mate. Yeah, yeah. look, I'm not even sure it's not a buy at this price, quite honestly. It, over the, for, as a long-term investor, again, if it, you know these guys will find, I say guys, guys and girls, these, these guys will find a way to make money for themselves and for shareholders yep. if they keep getting the structure right, they don't take too much risk. Um, yeah. I, I, look, I didn't recommend it for ages, mate, because I went, I don't know what Macquarie's doing in five years' time. How, how do you how do you reasonably forecast future earnings? They've, they've changed, you know, you've been around this long yeah. enough. They've changed models, what, two or three times? Probably yes. in serious, serious ways. So no one knows what this looks like in 10 years' time. You're literally saying, hey, I think they've got the right people on the bus. I think they're going to make the right decisions over time. I'm going to back their ability to make money. So it's a, it's a massive jockey play or jockeys play. Um, yeah. That's why I'm a Macquarie Bull. Yeah. All right. Uh, Daniel, what do you think of the result? And uh, Macquarie at these levels? Yeah, well, the share price has been appreciating pretty strongly to start the year. So I yeah. think the market was definitely anticipating a positive result. Um, Macquarie is one of those companies that they don't release the quantitative numbers in their trading updates, but they give you know, pretty strong commentary and the commentary you know typically for Macquarie is always a little bit subdued but it was actually quite upbeat particularly in that commodities division um, what they're essentially saying is you know we might not have peak volatility in commodities like we did over the last few years but we've actually got more customers coming to the table mm. uh, who want to essentially engage in risk management so that division continues to grow despite 
um, you know, potentially that peak in volatility in commodities and energy prices, which I found really interesting. Um, and I think the market will probably, you know, digest that. And ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, we'll, it will trade up and down. But this is a stock, like Scott said, it's been able to redefine itself, continue its growth, um, multiple divisions, grown substantially in North America. Um, we've owned it for a long time and we continue to buy it. Fantastic business. Okay, buy at these levels as well. For a long-term yep. investor, which we, yep. we consider ourselves yep. are, definitely. It's a, yep. a great growth story. And if you look at its valuation, and even if you look at that yield of around a gross-up yield of 4%, um, for a really defensive, high-growth company um, with a That's long runway good. for growth for many, many years, it's it's quite attractive compared to some yep. of our other stocks we're discussing today. Yep, absolutely. All right, let's get into the other things. Uh, the other stocks that you want us to take a look at. And Daniel Lilly wants um, a view on another bank. This is a regional bank, though. Uh, the Bank of Queensland. What do you think of Bank of Queensland? Yeah, it's another bank that we've owned as well. Um, I think, you know, we've been really positive on the outlook for banks going back about 12, 18 months. And the reason for that was that margin expansion story, essentially buying the banks on the cyclical low in net interest margins, you know, turned out to be a good idea for a cyclical industry. Um, but we've seen that really play out now. And now I think you can be a little bit more selective in your banking exposure. Um, so potentially for investors who have done well out of this in recent times and perhaps looking to clip that that ticket on the dividend, which we'd be looking to do as income investors in our income fund, and then go and reassess from there. Keep in mind that these regional banks, you know, they do have lower market share, their cost of funding is higher because they have lower deposit rates um, as a portion of their funding. So they are disadvantaged when you compare them to the bigger banks. Um, and what kind of premium are you receiving for investing in a, in a disadvantaged, lower quality company? Well, on a right. yield basis, not really that much. It's it's you know nearing the same yield as ANZ. So perhaps you know we, we've been holding on, holding on for the dividend, clipping that ticket, and then reassess from there. So. Um, really interesting to see how the regional banks will play out, especially you've had, you know, reignited merger talks with Bendigo yeah. Bank. So uh, definitely so, uh, hold. So, so you'd be a hold now, get the dividend, and then reassess after. I think you need to reassess how it fits in your whole portfolio. Yeah. Um, you know, we actually run an equal weighted fund in our income fund. So when you've got CBA is 8 9% of the index, yeah. we're holding it as equal weight. You know, sometimes we do need to hold more banks to keep our financials exposure up there. Right. Um, but we still see a lot of uh, benefits from that margin story coming out of Bank of Queensland. But keep in mind, there have been some some tumultuous times in the last few months. You know, CEO left. They have, they're having a different change of strategy. Essentially, they're right. focusing on growth under George Fazis, and now they're focusing more on, you know, ensuring their book value is high quality, um, lower system growth, but ensuring that quality is up there and um, right. and completing that integration with Maybank as well. Okay. So definitely look to reassess. All right. Uh, Scott, what do you think of Bank of Queensland? Yeah, Crusher, I find it really hard to dislike this one on a fundamental basis because it appears so cheap, particularly in the context or compared to its other banking brethren. P of nine and a half times, 7% fully franked yield. Um, so Daniel's point of, you know, collecting the dividend, this is a very, very hard one to walk past, particularly if you're an income investor. Let's say the dividend gets cut by a third. You're still getting well over 4%. Uh, it's just, it's a really nice part of a diversified income portfolio in particular, particularly at this price. Now, that doesn't mean it's without risks. Let's play this forward a little bit and say there are meaningful bad debts that come in as a result of maybe a housing fall, maybe a, a recession or, or rising uh, concern around the, the health of the economy. 
this could look very cheap today and very expensive in six or seven months' time. So you're not taking, this is not a zero risk investment mm. at the current price. And that's probably the big risk you are taking as an investor. And again, go back to COVID, we saw banks' dividends meaningfully cut or even deferred entirely. Now they were for a short amount of time, they came back. BOQ, of course, also particularly concentrated in one state, which I don't love. Um, if you are going to do it, I think you probably want a couple of those banks, almost to Daniel's point. I quite like um, my state, based down in Tasdale, oh, Southern okay. Queensland Exposure, by the way, or Bendigo and Adelaide. So I don't, uh, Commonwealth Bank for me is just way too expensive to hold. Um, the other banks, better value. BOQ, one of the best value. Now, you have to weigh that up against quality. CBA's earned a, a higher PE. I think it's a crazy high. Um, the PE is, I think, double BOQ or close enough to that. You say, hang on, is it really worth twice as much per dollar of earnings? I find that hard to believe. So I would be bargain hunting among the banks. BOQ is definitely one I'd be looking at. But if I did own it, I wouldn't want oversized exposure to it in the context of that single state, not right. predominantly single state exposure. You want to try and spread your risk, spread your money around a little bit. But I do think there's much more value in some of these smaller regionals, as long as you grab a couple that diversify your exposure rather than plumping on the, the usual big guys. Right. CBA particularly, I wouldn't own. The other's better value. Uh, but I think it's hard to go past BOQ for, for pure income. I'm yeah. not entirely sure it's going to beat the market from here, mate. Lower prices mean it's much harder to get loan book growth. Loans are banks' inventory along with deposits. So that's going to be tough. If net interest margins continue to rise and there are no meaningful bad debts, this is going to be a screaming buy, quite honestly. But we don't know that yet because we don't know what the economic circumstances yeah. will bring. A little bit of exposure, I think, is good. Too much exposure is probably not great given the potential risks in the next year or so. Okay, so put you down for a buy, but for income at this stage. Okay. That's probably right, mate, yeah. All right. Uh, Louis wants a view, uh, Scott, on the ASX, the uh, the owner of the, of the uh, of the stock exchange and, mm -hmm. and the platform. Um, always seen to be uh, seen as a pretty defensive stock. Used to be a good income earner. Um, mm. What do you think of it now? Both those things tended to be true, the problem is I think investors have bid this up way too high. And I think we're seeing that there's still a meaningful trade on those defensive. Think about Woolies and West Farmers, yep. both great businesses I'd love to own. They're too expensive. ASX similarly, P of 27 times a yield of 3.3%, wow. which isn't terrible. It's not going anywhere near the yield of some of the other companies. But again, if you think about diversification, there may be a role for ASX in your portfolio. Um, the share price is meaningful what it was a year ago, so you take that, I suppose. Uh, but just, I don't really know where the growth comes from, quite honestly. There are meaningful risks for the business. Think about SIBO, think about a competition mm. potentially for clearing at some point uh, where a lot of the ASX's money is made. And you kind of one of those situations where if things go really, really, really well, there's probably a little bit of upside. If things don't go really, really, really well, and they lose some of that business, some of that clearing business, for example, or some of the trade business. Uh, particularly, by the way, think about the, the blockchain debacle uh, mm. and the, the ASIC view on that. The ASIC took a very, very dim view yeah. of ASIC's mess up there, and it makes it more likely there's more competition rather than less. So you ask yourself, if I had an almost monopoly player that was trading at 27 times earnings, and I think about what is the future likely to bring? If they maintain that monopoly, they put up prices, the market rebounds, lots of listings, they could make some money and maybe this price is justified. But if the PE comes down to 22, 21 times, will they have enough growth to justify our share price yeah. gain at that point? I don't think they will. So I, there's too much risk for me. Yeah. It's a solid business. It's not as defensive as many people believe it to be because that monopoly is at the whim of ASIC uh, and it's just too expensive for me. If I honestly made, I probably would sell it. I think at 27 times earnings, there are just many, many, many better ideas out there. I wouldn't sell it necessarily desperately run away. I don't think you're going to lose a lot of money owning ASX over the long term, but there are so many better ideas. I'd be selling mm. and putting your money somewhere else. Yeah. Daniel, what do you think? ASX? 
Yeah, very interesting company. A bit topical at the moment, isn't it, as well, with that chess program. Yep. Um, it's worth mentioning that at Lincoln Indicators and Stock Doctor, you know, we have essentially our, our investment philosophy is built off, first and foremost, uh, financial health. And we have a proprietary insolvency risk model. So if I mention that a company has a strong financial rating, that's, that's what I'm referring to. And ASX right. has historically, you know, typically has had a strong financial health rating, which is really important for us. And furthermore, uh, uh, going forward from that, you know, it's it's really come out of this period over COVID where it benefited so immensely between transaction volumes, trading volumes, IPO volumes hit about $20 billion in value versus about, you know, $1 billion in the recent quarter. So it's coming off a, a pretty cyclical high and that's what investors have to remember here. But going off the basis and, and where the current price is and the future of the business, you know, it's a a stalwart of, a, of an Australian investor's portfolio, yielding around 4%. It has a little bit of growth in it. So it's one of those companies that are probably going to reliably grow their dividend um, and EPS, you know, low single digits for a long time. And if that's attractive to you as, as an investor, you know, then, then we'd be happy calling this a buy for the stock. But like Scott said, you know, if you're a high growth, um, looking for something with explosive upside, you know, this isn't the stock for you. Um, it can play a, a really great part as a defensive company in the portfolio. Um, but keep in mind, you know, you really need to be matching what you're investing in with your own personal needs. Um, yep. For us who consider ourselves longer term investors, we're actually quite happy to buy around these prices. They they're have some cost inflation growth, but they also have margin income off cash balances and, and collateral balances. Right. We should offset that, so we're happy to call it a buy. And, uh, and I, su I suppose there's the M&A potential if uh, uh, they would let the Singapore Stock Exchange buy it or, or the, there was talk the London Stock Exchange was sniffing around for a while a couple of years ago. So, yeah, that will be interesting. All right, our next stock, uh, um, Daniel Jason wants a view on Sims, the, uh, uh, the big metal recycling group that is... Uh, that, that rode the commodity price cycle up during the uh, during COVID, didn't it? Yeah, this is another company um, where we've had a pretty good look at, but it's also remember to important uh, to remember that it is extremely cyclical. It's in steel recycling, uh, recycles and sells about eight million tons per year, um, and it's coming off essentially, you know, the, the best um, period for especially recycling margins yeah. um, as a whole. So keep in mind that it's coming off an extremely high base. You know, the way we would think about this stock is, is it the highest quality stock in its industry? You know, whether you call it steel, you'd also throw in iron ore miners around there too. And, you know, we'd probably be arguing against it. You know, its return on capital is always, you know, significantly lower than a company like Blue Scope. Of course, you know, as a more commoditized product that seems produces that recycled metal, you'd expect it to earn lower margins. But, you know, we'd look more favorably on a company like Blue Scope with its Colorbond brand. Or to be honest, you know, we'd actually prefer probably a bit HP or a Rio in that iron ore mining um, direct exposure. Right. So we're probably looking to, you know, exit this stock and prefer some better exposure. But, you know, keep in mind that it can be incredibly cyclical. So perhaps when it's at the bottom of its of its market, it could be an interesting period to buy. But for us, we'd need to be, you know, really incentivized by the valuation. Mm. And we're not really seeing that at the moment. So I think we can we can move on and call this one a sell. Yep. Scott? Yeah, I agree with Daniel, I think, Koshi. It's hard to make a case for this being the best way to get exposure to what it does. And it, partly quality basis, partly just an economic leverage basis. If you think about the guys that are doing the stuff, the, the, the virgin iron ore, uh, if you want exposure to the iron ore price in particular and the steel price is a derivative of that, you, you buy the iron ore miners. I should say I own for shares in Fortescue, so maybe I'm a little bit biased, but I don't think so. Um, Sims is going to do well when the iron ore price is high, but the miners are probably going to do even better. 
Sims going to do reasonably poorly when the iron ore price is low, but then so are the iron ore miners. So you ask mm. yourself, in what circumstance would you prefer Sims to Fortescue? To Daniel's point, I'm almost repeating what he said, you're really going to look for, okay, the time when you would buy Sims rather than BHP, Rio, Fortescue would be if it was a particularly attractive price relative to those guys where you understand you're trading off some leverage, but you're getting in its stead a better price. Now, PE of 10, dividend yield of 4.1%. These aren't bad numbers, uh, but if you believe the iron ore price is headed higher, then you want to be hitching mm. your wagon, I think, to the miners themselves. If you think the iron ore price is going to go lower, you wouldn't buy this, of course, and you wouldn't buy the miners either. If you don't know where the iron ore price is going to go, then you probably don't buy anything. <laughs> and so you ask yourself, you know, based on those three scenarios, when do you buy Sims? I don't know. Now, it's a very difficult conversation, mate, because we're having this, this, this we're looking at these companies in isolation, saying, is it a yes. buy, not would I rather buy something else instead? That's a really important one. So if I start with, do I, if, is it a buy? To my mind, the answer to that is, because I think it's going to be market beating from here? And the answer for mine is a cautious no. I'm not sure it won't because if the iron ore price skyrockets, Sims could do very well as well as the other miners. Yep. So I wouldn't necessarily avoid Sims in and of itself. But because I don't know for sure, and because to Daniel's point, the price isn't particularly attractive, I don't think you want to be jumping in with both feet just yet. There's yep. a price, there's absolutely a price and a time. I said, I don't think it's ever going to be a better deal than the miners. So I'm not sure I ever would say I would choose this over them in my portfolio but is it likely to be market beating no not at the moment i don't think maybe at a 20 percent discount to the current price something like that i'm starting to get much more interested in terms of market beating potential okay all right so a no on sims uh scott ingrid uh, wants a view on telstra the uh mm. the biggest brand in the in the telco market here in australia Where's I, I saw a report today that um, from one of the the brokers who who had Telstra and Qantas as the surprise could easily outperform the market over the next twelve months. So I went, oh, Telstra in there. That's interesting. That is interesting, uh, particularly yeah. in Qantas as well. That's a that's a gutsy yes. duo given where given where Qantas is already and given what's likely to happen. Look, I, I own SimShares and Telstra. Uh, I said that before. I own them because one of our income portfolios owns them. And I already own them. We can't, as part of our trading policy, I can't sell against it. But I would sell them if we didn't own it in the income portfolio because I'm not looking for income from my shares. Right. And I think it's too expensive to be market beating from here. Now, let's break it down. Telstra is a really strong, dominant business with lots of pricing power. It is going to be for a very long time, I think, the premier name in telecommunications in Australia. I think it's probably going to remain the market leader when it comes to mobile speeds and coverage. These are really good attributes. And to Daniel's point before about quality businesses, this, to my mind, is the, the best quality branded business in uh, in telecommunications, mm. particularly mobile. It's also got a remarkable legacy business, right? There are so many people who still own Telstra Communication, a connection, I should say, because they did three yes. years, five years, seven years, 10 years ago, right? And so that's a really, really beautiful legacy uh, business to have. The challenge for Telstra, as we all know, is trying to get themselves out from under a bloated cost base and an over-reliance on fixed lines and get their business right-sized and redirected towards mobile and internet. Now, the NBN isn't a great business to have because you're reselling the same thing everyone else is selling, so your upside is relatively limited. There's only so much brand premium you can get selling the same thing. Think about bottled water, for example. Put aside Evian and Perio, of course. Um, yeah. go, to, uh, go, to, go to mobile, and you've got a much more differentiated offering. That's actually a really good thing for Telstra. I love the differentiated offering. I like the fact they have the best coverage. They can charge the best prices. They've yep. generally got the best speeds across most of Australia. So that's all in its favour. The problem is right now, PN Telstra is 22 times earnings. I know. Now you want to pay more than 20 times earnings for a growth business. There's a lot. I talked about defensive stocks before. It'll probably, for the foreseeable future, maybe the medium term at least, 
have a premium multiple because people see it as a defensive income stock or business. They know well that the kind of the mum and dad investors who own it from the IPO is never going to sell it. I think that's, you know, that's a really nice way to support the Telstra share price. But I don't think you can justify it on the basic fundamentals. Mm. So if I said to you, here is a telco, here's everything it does, here's what it's done over the past five or 10 years, here's its current price and yield, you'd say to me, geez, that, that looks expensive. Yep. And what you've got to be careful of, you should absolutely be prepared to pay up for quality, but not too much because the quality is already in the earnings. The quality is already in the brand, already in the price that people pay per month for connections. Yep. So I like, I like the business a lot. I think it's one of the stronger ones, one of the better brands in the country, despite some people's experience with Telstra. It, it, by definition, uh, the, the sheer uh, legacy business it has, the price premium it can charge, I think it demonstrates by definition it's one of the better quality brands in the country and therefore pricing premiums, but that's already in the earnings. I don't want to yeah. pay 22 times earnings for a slow growth business. I might come back and have another look when it's a, uh, you know, starts to get some growth back under its belt as it shaves off more of that fixed line, migrates further to mobile and, and, uh, and internet broadband. But I would agree that you should hold it. We do hold it as part of an income portfolio, a little like BOQ before. It's not going to be a massive dividend yield, but it's pretty secure. It's mm. pretty safe. It's okay. a very good cornerstone position for someone who wants a, a well-known brand as part of their income portfolio. Yeah. And uh, Daniel, you, you look at that five-year chart, Telstra share price pretty close to a five-year high at the moment. Yeah, and for good reason, Koshi. They've really benefited from, I guess, the rationalization in the mobile market. So all these competitors competing in mobile, which is, you know, Telstra's biggest earner, were benefiting from that MBN payment um, for many, many years. So they were able to compete more in price because their business was ex uh, essentially, you know, subsidized by the government. Now that that kind of payment is coming off, what we've seen is a massive rebound in pricing for that mobile market. And I'm pretty sure everyone's felt it this year, whether you're yeah. Vodafone, Telstra, Optus, you know, your, your mobile plan's going up pretty significantly. And that's actually quite uh, beneficial for Telstra. So we actually um, started to own this one in our income fund only recently, uh, a couple of years back. And I think that, you know, potentially was the right move because of that rationalization in the mobile market and like Scott said you know this isn't the stock that's going to shoot the lights out on the growth side but for that for that income investors looking for something reliable um, you know it's always going to be high market share higher quality potentially higher margins specifically in that mobile division than competitors um, you know they'll continue to benefit from that for probably years to come as ARPUs continue to rise one thing I'd mention is of course what's going to happen with that Optus security scandal so will yeah. we see a lot of members churn from there to the Telstra network, we'll have to wait and see. Um, and how will cost inflation really be managed within yeah. the business? They're targeting to take out a total of 500 mil from the cost base. So of course, those are the two really big things to watch coming into the report and into the numbers. And another thing I'd mention as well is, is the return of mobile roaming. So this is a part of the business that used to be about 10% of earnings in FY19, really went oh. to zero as travel was banned. Yeah. So how will that add to earnings in the near term? And for a company like Telstra, who's not as explosive in growth when you can have something like that you know be the kicker it can lead to some outperformance in the share price so oh, but a six percent gross yield yeah we think it's pretty attractive for that stalwart um uh, income investor and we'd be we'd be calling it a buy for that type of investor as well okay. at these prices all right buy uh for income and as scott was saying it's you know you dabble in the competitors to get a better rate but they you're you tend to go back to Telstra because they have far better coverage and speeds. You get so frustrated if you're a high user. All right, so we've looked at Telstra. Let's look at a competitor. Sarah wants a view, Daniel, on TPG Telecom. 
one of them, you know, this is Vodafone, Hutchison, um, that sort of group. Um, are they better than Telstra? Would you be investing then? Uh, potentially not better, but of course, when it comes down to investment, you have to consider the price that you're paying and what's the expected return from that business. So of course, TPG, you know, has been a laggard and that might look, attra look attractive um, if you're looking at its future potential, because it's obviously going to benefit from that mobile market growth as well. Even if it's not the number one player, you know, it's still going to benefit from that overall industry tailwind. Um, but there are a few things we're still cautious there. You know, they have a massive debt balance uh, on their balance sheet. And, and the reason why I brought up that financial health metric previously is that this is a company that can typically swing from being what we'd consider investment grade to early warning and potentially, you know, having a stretched balance sheet. So we're just a little bit cautious on TPG. We, we acknowledge that, you know, mobile growth and potentially that fixed wireless broadband growth can be the drivers for this stock. But ultimately, you know, you, you mm. want to be investing in the quality um, and we would prefer Telstra. And if okay. you're looking for something with more growth in a similar market, you do have a lot of competitors in that that could look interesting. You know, we'd call out Aussie Broadband as someone who's not in not in more mobile, but obviously in the broadband market who has been um, pretty exciting in that growth area. So there's obviously okay. a lot of options for this industry. And we think TPG is one you can let go to the keeper. Yeah, okay. Scott, that, that's, a, that's an ugly chart from, from TPG is. too, isn't it? Horrendous. You know what's worse, Koshi, is their is their earnings chart because it's even more brutal than oh, that. Girl. This is, by the way, well, this is this is the this is the cost and the opportunity, right? This is the this is the risk and, and the potential reward. In twenty twenty fiscal year twenty twenty, they earned sixty seven cents a share. In twenty twenty one, six cents a share, a full ninety percent less. Now, this is, well, this is, and this is why it's an opportunity, right? If you look at the numbers, you say, hang on, this thing's trading at a ridiculous multiple of earnings. Surely you wouldn't buy that. Yep. On the flip side, you look back and say, hang on, it's trading at eight times 2020. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, 2020's earnings. Now, again, they're due to release their earnings relatively soon. So, this is going to be one to watch, I think, because if they can return to some reasonable degree of profitability, and the market seems to think it can to some degree, that's why the P is currently 33 times earnings. If it can, this actually might be a steal. And this is the real question, because yeah. if you go back to okay. 2020 earnings, 67 cents a share, 7.8 times earnings. They pay out a decent proportion of that as dividends potentially. Maybe it's a five, six percent mm. yield. All of a sudden, you're kind of kicking yourself for not buying TPG today. If they can't, if things stay terrible or get worse, then it's going to be really, really expensive. Now, Warren Buffett famously said the problem with turnarounds is they seldom turn. Uh, so you want to be very <laughs> careful waiting in this sort of water because you can either get absolutely eaten alive or you look like a hero, right? The guy who calls the turnaround and it happens, does yeah. the victory lap and spends plenty of time on Osby's telling, telling you how clever he is. The guy who gets it wrong maybe doesn't mention it ever again. So I'm not sure you want to walk away from TPG, but I'm not sure you want to necessarily wade in just yet. Uh, as I said, the market already believes there is upside from last year's earnings. That's okay. why it's at 33 times earnings. You wouldn't pay that unless you believe that they could be you know, meaningfully reset. I, I think it's well worth a look. To Daniel's point, not because it's the best business, but because there's a price mm. for everything. And I think TPG, I, I, almost to the point that Daniel made about Telstra, one of the great things for the companies, maybe not great for consumers, is the consolidation of competition probably means there is less likely to be those irrational price cutting kind of, you know, um, yes. you know, super cheap stuff that people want to jump at. Same with airlines, by the way. When a third airline turns up, Qantas and Virgin drop their prices, the consumer wins, the airlines lose. The third airline goes out of business, prices go back up. It's kind of what happens. In telecommunications, the, the removal of TPG as a third competitor, or Vodafone as a third, whichever way you want to look at it, probably means more rational pricing for the companies. 
we consumers probably lose, but we shareholders do stand right. to do reasonably well. So I wouldn't buy it now. I wouldn't rule it out. I certainly wouldn't sell now. If you own it now, you probably own it because you see the quality in the underlying business. I think that's fair. Uh, yep. Not as good a quality as Telstra, as I said, but there is something there. So hold this one for now. Look at the earnings when they come out and then make a make a decision. But mm. I wouldn't at all be surprised if in a month or two's time, this looks much cheaper than it does now. Okay, that'll be interesting in this earnings season. Put it on your list to uh, to watch TBG. Um, let's recap the first uh, five stocks, our stock of the day. Uh, Macquarie, uh, a hold, a buy for long-term investors from, from Scott, uh, a buy from Daniel. Uh, Bank of Queensland, a hold from uh, Daniel. Scott has it as a buy if you want income. Uh, ASX, uh, the same, same reason uh, Daniel has it um, as a buy for income. Uh, Scott would have it as a sell. Uh, Sims, uh, a sell from both. Uh, Telstra, too expensive for Scott. Um, um, Daniel likes it basically for, for income portfolios as well. And TPG, uh, a no from Daniel and a hold from Scott. Uh, here on the call, we've been following our own fantasy portfolio. It was picked by the investment committee. Um, now, the latest, the new investment committee meeting goes up on the platform this afternoon about 4 p.m. We'll be playing it. Uh, the last time they met was early December. At that uh, meeting, they got out of Babcorp and Domino's, added Index and Janison, uh, increased the weighting in Elders. Uh, since the 1st of March last year, the fund is up about 14.5%. So about 4 p.m. this afternoon, the latest investment committee meeting goes up on the platform. At CMC, we've been in the game for a while. And although a lot of things have changed, our mentality hasn't. We aim to give experienced traders the best trading experience, like our expert platform with its second-to-none trading tools. Plus, our pricing is completely transparent. That's why people who've been trading for a long time stay with us for a long time. So if you're serious about trading, switch to the market leader trusted for over 30 years. Trade CFDs your way at cmcmarkets.com. You don't own underlying assets. Consider relevant PDS and TMD or information memorandum for CMC Pro accounts at our website. Um, this half hour, we're going to be taking a look at Red5, Linus, Santos, CleanAway, and Service Stream. Uh, Scott Killian wants a view on Red5, the, uh, the gold explorer and miner out of Perth. This is hard, Koshi. Uh, your viewers know well, I'm sure, my views on miners broadly yep. and gold miners in particular, which is uh, you are, you're betting entirely on the gold price if things go well. If things go badly, you're betting on execution. What I mean by that, I suppose, is a CEO, a board, a management team can only do so much. They can mine yep. as successfully, as efficiently, as effectively. They can explore as intelligently as possible. Those things do have their upsides, but it comes down to the gold price. If the gold price doubles or halves from here, there goes the returns in either direction. Yep. And so you, you literally are making that bet. Now, with a smaller player, you do have more a larger range of outcomes for, for I guess, obvious reasons. If they do manage to explore and find meaningful resources, then the share price is off to the races. If they waste a lot of money trying to explore and don't find enough, then the share price can be permanently harmed by that because it's using, you know, throwing good money after bad, the, the proverbial. I, I think right now there's no sense to my mind the gold price is at or near the marginal cost of production. I'm a broken record on this one, but I, I do it because I hope yeah. it's important for your viewers. You want to be putting the risk and reward trade-off in your favor. Yeah. If you can't forecast the gold price, you want to buy at a gold price that is as close to the marginal cost of production as possible because the industry as a whole 
won't produce below that for any extended length of time. They will start to mothball facilities. They'll start to remove production because it's uneconomic to mine. What that does is it limits the time and, frankly, scale of the downside price-wise and, therefore, share price-wise, and you maximize the chance that at some future point, the gold price is meaningfully higher. Mm. No guarantee. They can yep. still trade below cost for a very long time, but that's what you want to look for. At the moment, Redfire is trading at 47 times earnings. That means the market's got a lot of expectation about what, how good the future might be, and it might be. Again, I'm not suggesting that this business can't make money or investors can't make money. At best, it's intelligent speculation, though it's not the way I like to invest. So if okay, I owned it, I would sell you. it. Uh, largely, yeah, exactly. Largely, it's not for me. I don't think you can reasonably assess the probabilities. And if you can't do that, you really don't have any business yep. investing in companies like this. Yep. Daniel, what do you think of Red5? Yeah, Red5, originally, you know, it's a company that you look at, it doesn't screen very well, like Scott said, but it's sometimes worth taking a bit, you know, of a deeper look into these companies. Um, and if you have a deeper look, you find out that Red5 own a deposit, King of the Hill deposit, which yep. is just north of that Leonora district in WA. And of course, that's been hotly contested recently uh, by Genesis, uh, led by Rayleigh, Finlay Rayleigh Finlayson. So um, if you look at some of the history there, they actually acquired this project off Saracen Minerals, invested a lot of capital, almost three hundred million and building a four and a half million ton per annum facility there and the issue they've had over the last few months is that they only entered commercial production in december and they've had uh -huh. some complexities working through that ore body there so um essentially they haven't been able to get their uh, gold produced to a high enough level um, to allocate for the, the, their costs consumed um, and the reason for that is because the ore has been quite patchy so their strip ratio which is effectively your waste to gold um, ore in that rock has been really really high above um, what they're originally forecasting now that may normalize in the future and it could become you know a pretty big cash machine actually um, at this deposit but I think it's much more likely that if there is investor return hiding somewhere in this stock it's probably for some corporate activity in that area so yeah. look you know based on our screens we wouldn't be in the stock but you know if it's if the if the the callers um asking about this stock they're probably asking for that reason in particular because of that hotly contested area in the leonora district you know it's one to put on your watch list but mm. you know in terms of gold producers uh, we'd be definitely preferring some of the more you know larger established yeah. names it's hard to find a gold producer which is actually you know gushing a lot of free cash at the moment yeah. so if you look at northern star and uh, newcrest as well they're investing heavily so that free cash really isn't coming out of the business where you look at some of the African miners like Perseus, you know, they're generating four, 500 million US free cash a year. Um, definitely why those stocks have been outperformers uh -huh. in that, in that industry. Okay. So, you know, it's hard, it's hard with these stocks, you know, you, tr you don't want to, you know, take a look at the PE ratio because it doesn't tell you much. Head to the cash flow statement and try and understand what stage is this mining business at? Is it, heavy, is it heavily investing? Is it more in, you know, production where it's just generating free cash and looking to right. return that to shareholders? You know, it's a very difficult industry to analyze. So typically for the average investor, we'd say yeah. stick with the more established names. Right. And you prefer Perseus to, uh, to Red5? Yeah, we've owned Perseus and done pretty well. And, okay. and I think at the moment, one of the more attractive ones is Gold Road because they have that stake in DeGray. Right. And I think DeGray is probably going to be one of the more contested projects okay. in WA this year. All right. um, so I think that's that's a really interesting name at the moment. Yeah. Um, all right. Um, on a sort of keeping in the resources theme, um, Daniel, Jamie wants to know what your model says about Linus, the, uh, the rare earth group. Yeah, staying in my wheelhouse, yeah, the miners, yeah. so I'm pretty happy with this one. Um, look, 
it's a company we've owned and we really like. Linus really stands out in the mining sector because it's in that niche um, rare earth market. And particularly, you know, the last few years, it's been a market that's absolutely boomed. Now, obviously, keep in mind here that's a market dominated by Chinese production and refinement. Yep. So when you've got a company like Linus, which is, you know, mining in WA, producing in Malaysia, building a massive plant in Kalgoorlie to produce onshore as well, um, it's obviously has high strategic importance. But at the end of the day, it all comes back to that rare earth price. So while it's really elevated at these levels, we're probably looking more of a hold on this stock. The reason why it would be more of a hold and not a, a straight sell is because they have, you know, um, some pretty significant growth ambitions and expansions in the in the coming few years. Mentioned the Kalgoorlie plant. They also have cheap funding in the US to build a refinery there. They also have um, another expansion project that they can add onto that facility in WA. So output's likely to increase 20 or 30%, which can really help the company manage, you know, its profits and cash flows through the cycle. Um, so we'd be looking more as a hold here, but definitely, you know, one of the more interesting companies mm. in this sector. Okay. And if there is a downturn in commodities, Linus is probably one of our favoured picks. The reason why is because it has that strategic importance, and it's a it's a it's a unique producer um, in terms of its in terms of that strategic yeah. importance, and it's likely to remain profitable through the cycle because its assets are so established. And so, uh, if there is a downturn. Yeah, uh, keep this one on your watch list for sure. And they're getting lots of cheap loans from governments, aren't they? Both here in the United States because of that strategic uh, position. Scott, what do you think of Linus? Koshi, that strategic position is exactly where I was going to start off, mate. So you've segued beautifully for it. That that's the real kicker for me in terms of whether or not this ends up being a good investment. There is so much geopolitics around this one. Uh, this and oil are really, really difficult. Yeah, the oil market. There is no functioning free market. It's an OPEC cartel effectively setting or influencing the price. When it comes to rare earths, there's not necessarily the same activity. But you think about that cheap investment, you think about the way that um, strategic reserves are being treated by the US and Australian governments in the context of some, uh, I'd say aggression, let's say, let's mm. say disagreement with China. Tension. Uh, and the way that's, <laughs> the way, tension, thank you, the way that's being dealt with. And so, I mean, there is some real potential that mm. supply gets moved. Linus has one of the largest um, deposit, or sorry, the, the net total of all the deposits, some of the largest outside China. That makes them really attractive strategic assets for those governments. How that's treated, what sort of demand gets pushed their way, that can really swing this case either way. Um, I agree with Daniel's point. It doesn't look particularly cheap right now. I don't know that I would necessarily rush out and sell it either if I owned it. Uh, I will say the same thing as the commodities, right? I don't, I don't love them generally speaking, but this one is one where you can't just use the usual supply-demand dynamics mm. and say, well, like with gold or iron or copper, you know, it, it's, it's a reasonably well-functioning market. This is one where the geopolitical decisions made by governments will have a meaningful say on what happens with Linus. So it's not cheap enough to buy. I don't think it's necessarily uh, got enough obvious downside to say sell it straight away. But probably almost, almost, almost as a result of not being either camp, kind of goes in the middle and it's kind of almost yep. too hard basket or, or hold, whichever right. one you, you prefer based on your worldview. Okay, all right. Um, uh, similar to that point, Sam wants to view uh, Scott on Santos, big oil and <laughs> gas player. Saw, saw, yeah. a saw a natural gas chart the other day. Mm -hmm. uh, spot price has fallen off a cliff, hasn't it? Yeah. Uh, oil it prices are low, depressed at the moment. Um, what's your view on Santos? It's, it's fascinating when you look at PE ratios because generally speaking, it tells you what the market is thinking. On, on an industrial company, a low PE generally suggests to you either the market hates it irrationally or it hates it rationally because it knows that the future is mm. not as good as the past. 
and simply preparing for that. That's, I think, in this case, the case with Santos, the rational dislike. It's five, five and a half times earnings or so, which exactly is the market saying, hey, these, these spot prices have been great. The realized prices have been great, but it can't go on forever. And when it doesn't, we don't want to be paying too much and be left holding the baby. Um, I, ironically, look, the mo- daily movements of resources companies are mad because you, you're holding a business that's going to make profits over the next 365 days, a year's worth of profits, and yet yeah. it flicks around on a daily spot price or daily futures, which is just a little bit crazy. But the market tends to get the general quantum of the pricing roughly right more often than not. And I, with resources, as I, and Daniel will have a view on this as well, there's a general view, which is you want to sell it when the PE is low and buy it when the PE is high, which seems completely at odds mm. with what we're always told, yep. except that in these cyclical industries, it tends to be the case because a low PE tells you that they're likely to get a lower profit in the future. I would take that view with Santos. Again, I don't know for sure where the commodity price will be, but it was unsustainably high. It has been for a long time. There is way more than enough gas and oil around the world to go around if it's supplied. Now, again, think about geopolitics. Russian gas into Western and Eastern Europe, really, really important when it comes to the oil and gas price. And who knows mm-hmm. where that's going to go. So, uh, again, I wouldn't have owned it, mate. I wouldn't rush to necessarily sell it, but I wouldn't be buying it all despite what looks like a cheap uh, PE. You are, you are literally betting on what things might happen next where the oil price, gas price might go. Uh, I don't know, so I'm not going to play that game. But I've got to say, if I, I wouldn't be buying it on what looks like a cheap valuation. I'd probably be inclined to sell it, but it may be called a very cautious hold. Okay. All right. Uh, Daniel, Santos? Yeah, it's probably, you know, hotly contested stock. And the reason for that is it's been a laggard to, to Woodside, obviously. So yeah. I think the simple way to look at it is that, okay, this has been a laggard, sell Woodside, buy Santos for that valuation appeal. Um, but I think it's been a laggard for potentially not a good reason, but a justified reason in that. Woodside's the company that's going to attract most of the institutional capital and flow as the bigger, more liquid play. So that does make sense from our point of view, and we wouldn't build an investment thesis purely on that. But we actually own Santos, and the reason why is that you know they've actually been shifting to a really capital-friendly or, or a capital-return-friendly approach from the company. So they've increased their share buyback. They're focusing more on dividends. They're focusing on extracting as much value as they can from that P&G asset, so they're selling down another 5% um, and using that to pay down its debt. And we think that's somewhat underappreciated by the market, Mm. the fact that it's really focusing now on shareholder returns. And whilst it is investing heavily in the business, so not only in P&G, but it's offshore assets and and domestic assets as well, it's investing quite heavily in. And we think that over the next probably three, four years, a more patient investor will benefit from that. And just touching on the energy markets, it's pretty interesting because we talk about retail being an area which had a massive pull forward from COVID. Well, energy actually had a a massive pull forward in demand as well. Um, from COVID and also from the Russia-Ukraine impact. You know, European energy um, buyers were purchasing, you know, 30 40% extra volume for storage um, to essentially ride out the difficulties of what's going on in, in Russia and Ukraine and potentially if it was a harsher winter than expected. So that's why energy prices were so high. But now, you know, they're starting to moderate. But don't forget, there's a there's a big cartel called OPEC yep. who will step in if that if the energy <laughs> prices as a whole get too low. So right. we think that's probably going to provide opportunity for investors in Santos. You know, if you see if you see that starting to play out, um, potentially some some supply coming out of the market, then I think Santos is a great way to play it. Okay, so at the moment you'd be a hold, uh, a more positive hold than uh, than Scott, but. Uh, a potential buy in the future. Definitely. Right. And I think energy as a whole, 
Akashi, I might touch on it just quickly, but it's been underinvested in, especially for retail investors' portfolios. They've really yeah. been underweight energy in the past three, four years, and for good reason as well. But I think you know the fact that renewables is costing so much more than what was originally forecasted three, four years ago. You know these markets yeah. will be here for longer to stay. So yeah. definitely get some exposure to energy in your portfolio. Yeah. So depending on how your ESG filter works, but. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so certainly coal has been a great example of that in the last 12 mm. to 18 months. Um, exactly. Yep. Uh, Connor wants a view, Daniel, on CleanAway, the waste management group. Yeah, you know, this is a stock that we kind of toss and turn about clean away because it should, in theory, have a lot of factors that, you know, investors should really appreciate. You know, defensive contracts, it owns a big percentage of the market share in, in waste um, and recycling in Australia. But, you know, we're just not sure of its ability to generate, you know, an adequate return on capital. And that's because they tend to keep growing by acquisition and yeah. paying a lot for these acquisitions. So that does dilute the investor's return over time. And we think that, you know, on, on its odds, the business is probably not as high quality as what investors typically think. They actually recently mm -hmm. raised, you know, quite a bit of capital recently um, at a discount to the market. And that's reason, if you look, read between the lines there, you know, they're talking about how they're investing for growth and need the capital to invest. But it's really because their balance sheet was stretched. Um, you know, they couldn't draw down more on financing to invest in that capex and they had to raise equity. So think about why the business was in that position in the first place, you know. It's, it's a stock we'd probably be willing to, to sell here, to be honest. Right. And if you're looking for a defensive, you know, similar um, industry thematic, you know, we'd much rather be in a company like Brambles. Right. Um, but it does seem like that defensive area of the market is starting to wash through and investors are coming back for growth and looking for looking for potentially more higher mm. returning assets in the okay. future. So just be weary on, on any defensive yeah. stock, I think, at the moment. Okay. Uh, Scott, clean away. Yeah, too rich for my blood, Koshi. Um, Daniel's done a great job summarising the business, but at the moment, it's just a situation that you're paying up for a business that hasn't really shown meaningful amounts of sizable growth. Pretty good, pretty good long-term growth. Just steps up year after year after year after year. And again, that defensive nature is why investors love it. With all these defensive, we've talked about a few of them so far, and I mentioned Woolies and West Farmers on top of that. But if you take that group as a whole and simply say, can the current price be justified on fundamentals? I think the answer is a pretty clear no, at least yeah. in my mind, the way I do my maths. So why, you know, how do you how do you do okay? Well, you have to believe that investors are always going to pay up for these companies. And if they do, you're sweet. People have paid 40 plus times earnings for CSL for years. And as long as that remains the case, you're fine. If they pay 20 times earnings, all of a sudden the share price halves. Yeah. That, that's just the maths of the way the PEs work. And that's not telling your listeners or your viewers, sorry, anything they don't already know. What's important, I think, when you go through this model is simply saying, can I justify 33, 35 times earnings for clean away on the fundamentals? I don't see how you do. Yeah. You have to just believe other people are always going to like it enough to, to keep that PE at effectively kind of irrationally elevated levels. Yeah. I don't think you can make that case for clean away in and of itself. Again, you can make that you can make that case. You say, I think it will be the case, and maybe it will. It's absolutely possible. I'm not saying you can't do it. I'm saying if your job is to assign probabilities, will defensives always be this popular? Will they always yep. be in this much demand? Will clean away always be that stock? I don't think so. Okay. Uh, or at least I'm not sure enough to say to people, hey, go put your money in it and hope that it remains the case. Uh, when you're relying on the, the sentiment of others, that's a yeah. slippery slope investing-wise. So no, I would 
I, I like the business. I would sell it at the current price, buy it if it ever gets meaningfully cheaper. Okay. All right, Kenya, Nick wants to know, Scott, if you can make a case for uh, for service stream. <laughs> our, our final stock, we're, we're running out a bit of a, t- a bit of time, so we'll need to cover it quickly. Yep. Uh, they're, they're in the, they provide uh, maintenance installation for fixed line and, and wireless telecommunications. These are the guys that, uh, that actually put the hard wire in. Yeah. Uh, so can you make a case? Yes. Am I convinced about the case? No. Uh, so the, the <laughs> business has, the business lost, uh, profits have been declined for the last five or six years straight, almost in a straight line too, by the way. But for the five years before that, it was growing meaningfully. The share price is lower than it's been in the last six years. You go back to the 1st of February, 2016, to get a lower share Gee, price. That's horrible. And that's because the profit has been falling. Now, if you take the view that uh, that IT services can be, it's largely IT services, which is infrastructure services, can be reasonably cyclical, the, the, the opportunistic buyer might say, aha, I get to buy this at what might end up being a cyclical low and I'll make a lot of money for it. So that's why I imagine our viewers are bargain hunting this one, potentially looking at it going, hey, the price is so low, surely it can't go further. Ask AMP shareholders about the last 20 years if you want to see share prices <laughs> that can't go any lower and then do. Uh, you can make a case for it. It may well do well from here, mate, but the financials don't suggest it. Yeah. It's all about contract wins and how much work they've got. I wouldn't be buying yet, but it is one I think it's very worth keeping on your radar mm. because the operational leverage is pretty strong here. If they do sign a couple of contracts, it wouldn't take okay. much to meaningfully boost that bottom line. So uh, no, and even if you do see that contract win start to come in, there might be some speculation, a lot of speculation in the purchase, but you might make some money. You can afford to wait, I think. If you miss out, then you miss out. I would wait until I saw some contract okay. wins that seemed to move the dial on service stream. All right, Daniel, how does it stack up in your model? Yeah, I'll keep it quick. Service stream, look, it's it's pretty dismal, isn't it? It's a company, <laughs> like Scott mentioned, it's financials. Well, we have it screening as pretty poor financial health, so we wouldn't be anywhere near this stock. But we actually do like that infrastructure spending thematic. The government keeps finding ways to spend taxpayer money. And, you know, we'd probably call out three other stocks, one being Duratech, uh, Mass Group and Venture Services, which looks like they'll be probably winning those contracts over a company like Service Stream. So I think those are three socks you can put on your watch list. Um, definitely more encouraging in this area than Service Stream, and we'd be avoiding it okay. completely. All right, mate. All right, gents, thank you for that. We've got a dash Daniel Ortiz from Link Indigo. It is great to have you aboard. Thanks, Scott. Good Have great a good rest of the week. Scott Phillips, always great to have you on the call. Mate, really appreciate it from the Motley Fool. Good on You're you. always kind. Thanks, Dave, mate. Thanks, Daniel. All right. Uh, let's recap the final five stocks. Uh, Red five, a sell from Scott. Um, not at the moment, but put on your watch list from uh, from Daniel, uh, although he prefers Perseus and Gold Road. Um, Linus is a hold from both. Uh, Santos, a cautious hold from Scott, a more positive hold from Daniel. Uh, clean away a sell from both. If you want a def- defensive stock, um, Daniel thinks Brambles is probably better than clean away. And Service Stream is a no from both, but uh, is on Scott's watch list if it gets a few more contracts. Hey, if you'd like us to uh, cover any stocks you're interested in, put them in an email to me, the call at osbiz.com today or tweet us using the at osbiz TV handle and I will put them to our expert panel. Don't forget the um, uh, Reserve Bank decision, 2.30 p.m. this afternoon, Eastern Daylight Time. You will get the very latest as it breaks right here on Osbiz Live. Up next, The Pulse with Andrew.